Welcome back to Killer Fun, where we explore the intersection of crime and entertainment every other week. I'm Christy. And I'm Jackie. And we're so glad that you're back with us today. Today, one of my most favorite movies. Is it? It's your most favorite? Uh, It's not my most favorite. It's one of my most favorite. It's one of those (laughs) that if it's on and I happen to like see it, that's what I'm going to. Which means I've seen the second half of this movie at least three times as much as I've seen the first half of this movie. (laughs) Which the movie is Catch Me If You Can. We haven't said it yet. I figure I better say it. I know. I just kind of dove right in. Like I, I was like, yeah, time. they'll catch up. They'll figure it out. They'll know what we're talking about. I don't know. I just, I really like this movie too. I just wasn't aware that it was like one of those go-to movies for you. Oh, I love this movie. Leonardo DiCaprio's so cute. Adorable. Adorable. And Tom Hanks is just this lovable grump and it's redemption it is it's it is the absolute hope we all have. Uh-huh. Right? Exactly. And it's clever and it's fun and it's potentially true. <laughs> it's true enough. It's, it's true adjacent. <laughs> yeah, it's true adjacent. <laughs> yeah. And and you know what? You're right. Leonardo DiCaprio he is so good in everything. He's but you put him with like Tom Hanks and it is just a, it's a, I don't know, it's a killer cast, man. It's yeah. just fabulous. Oh, yeah. There's so, speaking of cast, there's so many great people in this movie. Now, I'm not going to talk about what all these people have done because they're ultra famous for the most part. <laughs> so, ultra famous. Leonardo DiCaprio, Frank Abagnale Jr., Tom Hanks is Carl Hanratty, Christopher Walken is the elder Abagnale. Martin Sheen is Roger Strong. Amy Adams is Brenda Strong. James Brolin is Jack Barnes. Elizabeth Banks is Lucy the Teller. Jennifer Garner is Cheryl and the sex worker slash model. Yeah. (laughs) And then, then we have somebody who's not famous, but they're still kind of famous because this movie kind of made them famous, which is... Frank Abagnale Jr. He was right? one of he play had a cameo as a French policeman. <laughs> so I, like, I didn't know that. Yeah, I was that's like, funny. oh, that's fun. I'm glad he got to be like part of it. Aren't you? I mean, well, I have to say, I'm glad. I would be glad if I were him that Leo DiCaprio played me in the movie. Like that would be like, oh, I have made it. <laughs> I read an interview where he said exactly that, where he said, I love that Leonardo DiCaprio played me in this because everybody thinks I look like him now. He's like, I don't look anything like Leonardo DiCaprio and the fact that we're white men, but. It's like, it's like, who, who would you want to play you in the movies? Uh You know, like me, Jennifer Aniston. Mm-hmm. Obviously, she is out of my league, right? No, but that's like, not true at all. Oh, you're sweet. But like, if I did something amazing, I would want her to play me in the movie. <laughs> she wouldn't be able to sing as well as you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> that's just the truth. Aww. That's just the she truth just right there. It. Well, thanks. Well, who would you choose? I have no idea. Maybe. You don't think uh, about this? No, not usually. Maybe, uh, oh, her name escapes me. The one who played Suki in Gilmore Girls. Oh, gosh, I love her. Melissa, Melissa McCarthy. Yes. She is the best. She's so fabulous. She's so funny. I could only wish to be as funny as she oh, is. But please. she could make me way funnier. You you are funny enough. Oh, you are awesome. Aw. You and your husband. Y'all are all a riot. It's hilarious. And so, and your kids got it, too. It's All right, so shall we recap this based on a true story? Yes, let's do. (laughs) All right. Well, it starts with an episode of To Tell the Truth. This is where they, like, give you three people who are all pretending to be one person who's somewhat notable. Old television show from, like, the 1970s. And they give you the lowdown of... 
Frank William Abagnale Jr. and all his salacious activities in his youth. And then we start at the end, which sounds weird, but it's exactly what we do. Frank is in a French prison. A man, we learn later, is FBI agent Carl Hanratty, is there with extradition papers. And man, you really feel bad for poor Frank. Those are some poor conditions in that French prison. It's not great. And he seems to be in really bad health. And as sickly as he is, he still makes a break for it. He still does. He still tries to run. And as he's crawling down the hospital, or down the hospital, down the hallway with all the French prisoners cheering him on, he just rolls over and says, okay, Carl, let's go home. (laughs) It's such an honest moment, and you learn so much about their entire relationship right there. Mm -hmm. You really do. Mm -hmm. And now we start at the start. We go back to Frank's father, Frank Sr., is getting an award from the New Rochelle Rotary Club, and his acceptance speech has a tidbit in it that will come back several times throughout this movie. Two mice fell in a bucket of cream. One mouse quickly gave up and drowned. The second mouse wouldn't quit. He struggled so hard that eventually he churned that cream to butter and crawled out. It's the most inspiring, ridiculous little story, but it is so impactful. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. I mean, you know, you understand. You can see the visual. You understand exactly what he means. I think maybe it's a bit of a dark view of the United States economy and what it takes to get ahead. Well, definitely. One of those mice, they drowned. And that other mouse didn't just not kick that dead mouse while he churned it to butter. Right. It's a a little darker than you think it is. It is kind of really dark. And you're right. It is completely representative of the idea of trying to get ahead. And the fact that, you know, you're not thinking about everybody you leave behind drowning. But on the other hand, you're supposed to be inspired to keep going, to be persistent, to not give into the despair that others would give into, to not let it get on top of you, you know? And so it's so inspiring. And yet it's, Mm -hmm. yeah, kind of (laughs) horrible. It's like wonderful and horrible all at once. Yep. Yeah. I think that's capitalism in a nutshell, actually. Uh, Really? Truthfully. (laughs) It's wonderful and horrible. So we learned that all of this, this award from the Rotary Club is a facade that the elder Abagnale is in trouble with the IRS, but he's astute enough to understand that how you look is just as or more important than the reality of the situation. So just like the Yankees not only have Mickey Mantle, but they also have their pinstripes. We also see that Frank's dad is trying to get a loan from a bank, and he realizes that if he looks more successful than he is, that he is more likely to get the loan that he seeks. But despite his efforts, he fails, and the family has to move to a small apartment away from their lovely home. On Frank's 16th birthday, His desirable French mother, Paula, is on some sort of mysterious errand when Frank Sr. gets home. The elder Abagnale gives Frank a checking account with $25 in it as a 16th birthday gift. And just as an aside, $25 is about $200 in buying power in 2020. So it wasn't an insignificant amount of money for a 16-year-old. Yeah, Yeah. it was a big deal. Yeah, especially for a family that's struggling. And then we see Frank's very first con in the movie. After moving from a private school to a public school, he pretends to be a substitute teacher to avoid getting bullied because he decides to wear his blazer, his private school blazer, to his first day of public school. And... (laughs) 
He plans a field trip and has a parent-teacher conference. It's quite the elaborate con, and it takes them a week to catch him. <laughs> <laughs> and and this this is one of my favorite set of scenes, and it culminates in maybe at least my top three, like one of my top three favorite scenes when they're walking out of the principal's office after they've talked to the parents and the mother is not happy. No. Rightfully so. And then the dad comes to, you know, get Frank out of the chair and Frank's obvious, like, "Mm, I don't know how this is going to go. And then the dad can't help it. He kind of giggles and laughs a little bit. And then the son laughs a little bit and they start giggling and walking away because they both think it's really hysterical. And I was like, that tells me everything I need to know about that. Mm -hmm. That's right. How quickly these relationships are made very clear to us. It doesn't take a whole lot for you to really realize. Well, then we kind of learn what that mysterious errand was on Frank's 16th birthday. It wasn't to get Frank a gift. Frank comes home from school and Jack Barnes, his father's associate from the Rotary Club, is... They're in the house, in their apartment, in the bedroom, with the door shut. It's not long after that that Frank comes home from school and finds a lawyer there who's going to help them negotiate divorce. And Frank is asked to choose which parent he'd like to live with. And he does not want to make a choice, so he runs away. And there it begins. And there there it begins. So Frank starts writing hot checks to survive, but he's still having trouble cashing them, even using the charming techniques of persuasion that his father illustrated to him with like a necklace. Oh, this must have slipped right off your neck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that wasn't working. Then Frank sees the prestigious pilot's walking into a hotel lobby and people treat them like celebrities. And so he gets an idea and he poses as a student reporter and talks to a man at Pan Am about all of their policies and procedures. He's just so curious and interested. He learns that all he has to do is call this phone number if he'd like to get a pilot's uniform all he has to do is report it stolen and he doesn't even have to pay for it they'll take it out of his next quote-unquote paycheck he writes down his employee number and then he learns at the hotel that he's staying at on pan am's dime that he can cash checks at the hotel which is a life changer for her <laughs> yes personal checks up to a hundred dollars and payroll checks up to three hundred He begins his check fraud scheme. He goes to a hobby shop and gets models of Pan Am airplanes and soaks off the little stickers. And he's able to make excellent looking counterfeit checks in (laughs) amounts very close to $300, $299.12-ish around that area as much as he can without being suspicious not 299.99 that would be too suspicious then he learns that the airline will cash the check at the airport not know this so he goes to check to cash a check at the airport and they ask him if he's their deadhead and he's like oh what is this little rabbit hole? <laughs> yeah, he's like, yes, yes, I am, without really understanding what it is. <laughs> yeah, he has no idea what's going on there. Mm-hmm. And there he goes on his first flight off to Miami. And it's so funny because his first flight is his first flight ever. Uh-huh. And it's in the cockpit. Yeah, The look on his face when they took off was just priceless. Yes, it's a good thing they didn't have rearview mirrors in the cockpit, that they don't have a need for that, or the gig would have been up right there. Uh Leo played that so well. The look on his face was so hysterical. It was great. (laughs) So in Miami, he charms a cashier at a bank 
takes her out to dinner, cashes a check, charms her, and starts pumping her for information, coyly, sweetly. And this is where he learns about the micker encoding and starts to percolate the idea of the float. And FBI agent Henratty is the really the first to notice this the float. He's the one who calls it the float. Frank invented it. Hanratty named it. And he's chasing Frank all over the country. <laughs> and then he finally catches up with him in, I think, in Hollywood. It's at the Tropicana Hotel. So I think that's in Hollywood. And yeah, it is. He, he realizes that Frank's still there. Of course, he doesn't know Frank's name. He's still calling him the unsub, the unknown suspect. Right, and he doesn't know anything about him, really. No, just that Not he's, that he's a kid. He, yeah, he knows nothing, nothing else. Yeah, he yeah. just knows that he's floating checks around the country, that he's figured out how to work the banking system so that he can paper a city for weeks on end before he has to move on and get caught at or risk getting caught. So I caught a little flub here because he realizes he's still in the hotel. So Hanratty runs upstairs and he's got his gun out and he startles a maid and he shows her his ID. His ID is facing the camera. <laughs> it's not facing the maid. The maid's in front of him, and he shows her his ID, but his ID is facing the camera and not the oh maid. Oh, my gosh. I, never, I did not catch that. <laughs> That's hysterical. I had to run it backwards. I'm like, wait, that wouldn't tell her anything. That was the black outside that he showed her. <laughs> that is really funny. I did not even catch that. How funny. Isn't I'm going to have funny? to go back and watch it again. Yeah. Lot, watch that scene again. So Frank narrowly avoids capture here because he pretends that he is a U.S. Secret Service agent. You didn't think the FBI was the only one on this guy's tail, did you? And says his name is Barry Allen. And Hanretty catches on too late. Frank's already out the door with the maker machine and a pile of checks. Then Frank learns that he has a cool nickname. He's talking to his contact at Pan Am as the student reporter, and he learns that his cool nickname is the Skyway Man, James <laughs> Bond of the Sky. <sighs> he goes and gets the same suit as Bond wore in the movie, gets a fancy car. I don't know if he rents it or how he ends up with this fancy car for a short period of time. He's staying in a fancy hotel and he runs into this uh, sex worker and they have a liaison, which results in him duping her out of some money while Hanratty is having his white clothes ruined at a laundromat. <laughs> <laughs> the dichotomy of the two people. Yes. Yeah. Yes. One's churning cream into butter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then we get our first theme of Christmas. This will happen several times. Frank, still known as Barry Allen, calls Hanratty to apologize for the way he treated him in California. And they chat. They talk about the Yankees and the pinstripes. Frank tells Hanratty the truth about his location and his plans for that weekend, but Hanretti doesn't believe him. Hanretti realizes that Frank doesn't have anybody else to call. He may be living this fabulous life of luxury, but he's still a sad, lonely person. Right. Yeah. And he kind of makes fun of him. He yeah. laughs at him for this. And it's yeah. kind of very sad. Because at this point, Carl still really doesn't realize that he's a kid. No, he finds out... In the next scene, he's at a mm -hmm. diner, pouring over paperwork, trying to figure it out. And the name Barry Allen's all over these printouts that he has. And the server asks him, oh, are you a collector? And he's like, you mean am I a collector? He's like, Barry Allen, the Flash. And that's when it clicks that he's a kid. And because they talked about the Yankees, he's probably a kid from New York. So they start looking at runaways from New York, and they end up at Paula's house 
They learn his real name because they see his real picture in his yearbook, which I was surprised that she had to go to the yearbook. That's what's really sad about this story is that it's really sad about this story. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because she just replaced them. Yeah. Like when the money, when the money dried up. Yeah. She moved on. She moved on to another. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I was like, she doesn't have like that yearbook picture in a frame in her house somewhere. She had to go get his yearbook. Ah. Yeah. I got opinions. I got opinions. Yeah. They tell her that he's passing bad checks. And she says, I'm working part-time at the church now. Let me just take care of it. Which I'm like, (laughs) okay, she's just going to throw some money at this rather than like, oh, you know where he is, you know, be concerned about his whereabouts. No, she's just going to make it go away for him. Which, I don't know. And for her. She wants it to go away for her, too, because this does not look good on her either. Right. So maybe in this, I don't know, maybe it was different in the 60s. Mm. But her uh, part-time church job, not going to cover it. Because at this point, Frank was in a, about $1.3 million. Frank's in Georgia now. And after a meeting a pretty nurse, he decides he's going to, quote-unquote, become a doctor. <laughs> he takes a job as a night supervisor of an ER. And the interns do all the real work, thankfully. And he and the nurse Brenda end up getting together, and Frank watches TV to learn how to talk like a doctor well enough. Well, Henretti's finally tracked him, has a good lead on where he is after talking to Frank Sr. He gets to Georgia, but it's too late because Frank and Brenda have gone to Louisiana where her family is, and now he's pursuing another career law. He's working with his future father-in-law, Brenda's dad, after taking the bar exam. And again, Frank uses television shows to figure out how to talk like his profession to a ridiculous, hilarious scene in a courtroom that's it's just so funny. That he's acting out in his room, like yeah. he's practicing kind of. And, well, he's practicing, yeah. yeah. It's so silly. and It's really it's funny. Just, the judge is, what in the heck is wrong with you, boy? It's so funny. Christmas Eve again, Frank calls Hanratty and he begs, please stop chasing me because this is a mistake. He says, I'm getting married and I want you to just leave me alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because just, he's also just passed the bar at this time. Right. And they don't know how he did it. Right. At this time. They right. don't know how. Yeah. But he's like, this. he might just stop running if he could just stop being chased at this point. Right. So he's begging Hanratty, like, just leave it alone. Yeah. He would mm-hmm. just marry Brenda and put down roots and stay there and be fine. Hanratty realizes he's in Louisiana, so they start looking for wedding announcements in the newspapers. And he knows he's using the same name that he was using in Atlanta because otherwise he'd lose the girl. Right. He's got to keep the name. Yes, he does. Yeah. He can't change it. Right. Frank escapes dramatically from their engagement party when Henry and his FBI cohorts show up. And he confesses to Brenda super quick, shows her all this money that he's got, and tells her to meet him at the Miami airport. When she gets to the airport, he realizes that she's working with the FBI now. Oh, it's going it to be very heartbreaking. Sad. Yeah, I mean, okay, for Brenda, this is the right thing to do. It was. But it's it's super sad. It's still super sad. Yes. <laughs> You're sad for the criminal who's our hero. Yes. It's, our anti-hero. I think that's why I love this movie. And I often love movies like this. It's weird. I enjoy it when I'm like rooting for the bad guy because he's not really a bad guy. Yeah. It's why we're rooting for Walt in Breaking Bad. For a while. For, for a while. You root for him for a while and then he's you just really for- bad and you're like, you get whatever's coming to you. But anyway. Yes. <laughs> we digress. <laughs> so once he realizes that she's working with the FBI, he decides 
to put together a distraction. He calls up a women's college and sets up quote unquote interviews for a flight attendant training program. And he picks six or eight pretty young women to dress them up like flight attendants and use them as a distraction to get into the airport because nobody sees him. All they see is a pilot's uniform and the beautiful stewardesses. Right. Yeah. Just surrounding him. And And marches by all the cops. He sure does. Meanwhile, outside, he hires a driver to wear a Pan Am uniform and sit in his car. And they go after that guy. And he walks in and gets on a plane. Mm-hmm. And the driver had a sign with handwriting as the person he was supposed to pick up. It was so funny. So, so funny. Now Frank's cashing checks all over the world. And they're such good checks that it takes much, much too long for the airlines and the banks to realize that these are fraudulent checks. They go to experts and they say these are being printed on a monster, an offset press called a Heidelberg, probably in Europe, based on routing numbers, because he's doing the float now in Europe. Frank is found with his press by Hanratty in France, in the little bitty town where his mom grew up. And it's Christmas Eve. Poor Frank. He's so excited to see Hanratty. Yes, he is. He's excited, and but he's he doesn't believe him, but he doesn't know what to believe, and he's just, he's tired. Yeah, he's kind of just lost it at this point. Yeah, he really has. And he's taken into custody by French authorities. Uh, Hanratty promises to get Frank out of jail. I'm going to get you extradited, which is what we saw back at the beginning of the movie. Here we are. We've come full circle. It finally happens, and as they're landing in New York City, Hanratty tells Frank that his father has passed away. All this time, every time we've seen them on the plane, don't let me forget to call my dad, Carl. And Carl goes along with it. Yeah, he just, I don't know how to feel about that, but I mean, I understand it. But, of course, now that he learns of his father's death, Frank is understandably quite upset. And he uses that to get to the restroom to have a moment to grieve in private. And he takes more than a moment by escaping through the bathroom commode area. He crawls down into the... Yep, he takes apart the little sink, and Uh, then he goes right underneath uh, into the cargo area. uh Uh-huh. And then he waits until he lands, and then he shoots himself out of the landing gear area onto mm-hmm. the tarmac and starts running. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he runs to his mom's house. It's Christmas time. There's Christmas tree. All this stuff is up. And he realizes that his mom has just replaced their entire family. Mm-hmm. And he's ready to be done. He's, now he's, he's done being tired he's uh Henretti and his crew get there get to his frank's mother's house and he says just get me out of here get me out of here uh so frank is taken away he actually goes to prison another another christmas at some point in the future Henretti goes to f- visit frank in jail just interesting and he says he's on his way to chase a paper hanger in Minnesota. And Frank's like, oh, you got any of the checks? Let me look. So he knows right away that it's a teller at the bank. And Hanratty's appropriately impressed at how right. quickly he can decipher this information. You can see the gears turning. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. And his skill with fraud is what gets him gets Frank the chance to be able to serve out the remainder of his sentence serving the US government mm-hmm. by catching fraud which he then does for many years to come mm-hmm. he sure does uh we get one last relapse where Frank is 
deadheading for a weekend, but he shows up at work and goes on to work for a long time. And we see the closeness of their relationship at the very end. Not only are they the only two nerds really interested in the, in the check. Yeah. (laughs) But Frank tells Carl, I didn't cheat. He's like, what are you talking about? He's like, I didn't cheat on the bar exam. I studied for two weeks and I passed. And it's like, oh, such brilliance. I know. It's like this moment, (laughs) Uh you know, like, and it's interesting because it kind of calls back that one moment where he wanted to settle down, where he could have settled down Mm -hmm. and Hanratty has to go, you legitimately did that. Yeah. I could have stopped. Yeah. I wonder what it would have happened. You know, like you have to, you have that moment of thought of, of, wow, you know? Uh Yeah. What was it going to, what could it have been like? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, so Frank continues to work for the government. And then he goes on to work for the banking industry to prevent fraud. He and Hanratty become true friends, and Frank settled into a quiet life. This movie was a huge success. It came out on Christmas Day, 2002. It had a $52 million budget, and it had a worldwide gross of over $352 million. Wow. Incidentally, the French version of the film had Frank teaching a Spanish class in his high school instead of a French class. (laughs) Well, that makes sense. (laughs) Roger Ebert liked this movie, gave it three stars as well he should. He said, this was my favorite line from his review that this is a true story probably goes without saying since it's too preposterous to have been invented by a screenwriter. (laughs) Yep. All right. Well, how true is the story? Oh, I can't wait to find out. We're going to find out right after this quick break. Man pounding on firecrackers with his knife ignites explosion, fatally sending the knife into his eye. Uganda man offers locals in a bar to hit him with a cane for 100 shillings a stroke and dies. Woman killed by alligator. Her last words? Guess I won't do this again. Join us on the Darwin Awards podcast, where we talk about people who recently removed themselves from the planet by doing stupid things. Such stupid things. We are three brothers who scour the internet each week to find you the most entertaining and deserving stories. Join us every Monday as we discover newly deceased idiots. Any platform you use, we are on it. Search the Darwin Awards podcast. Thanks for sticking with us through that quick break. Is it true? Well, it's kind of difficult to know for sure what's true. Really? Oh, you're breaking my heart. You're breaking my heart. We'll do the best we can, but let's talk about why it's hard to tell. The Los Angeles Times had an article from late December 1982 by Bob Baker, and he said it has a trickier relationship with the truth because its source material is largely unverifiable. And that source material is a book that Frank Abagnale himself wrote. Well, he was interviewed and he had a co-writer who did the actual writing. So he didn't write it himself. He's like a co-author. So the claims that are unverified that are in both the book and the movie Beginning at age 16, he cashed $2.5 million in bad checks in every state and two dozen foreign countries that he impersonated a Pan Am pilot that went on for the better part of five years, and that he posed for months as a hospital pediatric supervisor, a college sociology professor, and an assistant district attorney. So some of those things can be sort of verified and some not so much. Hmm. So they definitely know that he was impersonating a Pan Am pilot and flew. But yeah. they how long he actually did that is kind of... They don't really know for yeah, sure. Yeah, they've got some questions about that. People have tried to independently verify it, but Frank Abagnale in the book and in the movie changed everybody's name changed a lot of the details in order to protect them. 
And he said, due to embarrassment involved, I doubt if anyone would confirm this information. And that makes sense. Uh, it does. Uh, so Frank Abagnale admitted that at least some of the story was a uh, exaggeration. He <laughs> said, he said about 80% of the movie is accurate. That's not bad. It's not, it's not bad. I mean, I mean, you would expect about that much to be accurate in any biographical movie. They're going to condense yeah. things, change things in order for it to be more right. But he only spent about 30 or 35 hours with Stan Redding, who wrote the book, being interviewed. Mm-hmm. And then Stan took it and wrote on it and embellished on things a little bit. <laughs> that said, we can confirm some things. Screen Rant has a really interesting article that, yes, in fact, his parents' divorce was sort of a catalyst for his career. <laughs> career. Quote, <laughs> yeah, unquote. His criminal career. And that he admitted, Frank admitted that, you know, when he was living this fabulous, glorious life, really what he wanted was his parents to get back together. And I think that's pretty clear in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They did a good job of kind of showing that and showing where that came from. And Yes, they did. But Christopher Walken's role as Frank Abagnale Sr. was much larger than Frank's father's role in his real life. He never saw his dad again after he ran away at the age of 16. Really? Yeah, and said that the movie uh, shed a much more positive light on his father than was actually true. Well, and I can see that being from maybe Abagnale Jr.'s perspective Mm -hmm. about how impactful the father was to him throughout that whole time. Right, right. Even if he wasn't really there. Right. You know. He really did pose as a student newspaper writer in order to be able to get access to information from Pan Am. The night with the escort in the fancy hotel. Yeah, that really happened. And I don't know how she did it, but she went to the police to report the fraud. Like, last time I checked, prostitution was illegal. Why would you go to the police to report your 400 bucks that he stole what from What city you? were they in? I don't know. Because some cities, it's legal. I know it's legal in parts of Nevada, mm-hmm. but not, not that way. You have to be a part of a, like a brothel or a house establishment. I don't know that it's legal... Maybe it was in the 60s. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But I think I don't know maybe. Either. I don't know. Or maybe she just wasn't going to tell him that part. I don't uh-huh. know. <laughs> yeah. So the way he got arrested, not how they portrayed it in the movie, that it was actually womanizing that got him captured because they had his picture on wanted posters and a lady, a flight attendant he used to date, saw the f- posters and then saw him on a plane going to France. <sighs> and she yeah. sure did turn him in. Wow. Yup. Well, that is less less dramatic. <laughs> I don't know. I might have enjoyed it a little more. Maybe so. The woman scorned. Yeah. Although in the whole movie, they didn't really portray him as a womanizer. I mean, no. he definitely had flings and he definitely enjoyed women. But like, he was never portrayed as somebody who was you know, using and abusing women so much. Was That's he true. in real life? Do they know that uh, he was a little bit more of a womanizer? He, I think, I think so. I think he dated a lot and, you know, dated had affairs with and, you know, wasn't ever really around to be, mm-hmm. to have a relationship with these women that he was seeing whom he was lying to about right. his age and profession and all kinds of things. So, his imprisonment was a little different, too. He did spend time in a French prison, and he said that the reality of French prison was, in fact, harsher than it appeared in the movie. Oh, gosh. 
He was there for about half a year, and then they sent him to Sweden to be tried for crimes there, which he then went to prison in Sweden for a period of time, I think 18 months, but I'm not positive. And he was facing extradition to Italy when the judge in Sweden had the passport that Frank was using canceled. So he had to be sent back to the U.S. He's like, we're not going to send this kid all over Europe to spend time in all the different prisons. We're going to send him back to the U.S. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) I have bad news. Oh, no. Oh, no. Carl Hanratty is not a real person. What? (laughs) How could the movie lie about Hanratty? He's really a bunch of people who worked on the case all rolled into one character. So when they say he was good friends with Hanratty. Okay. So there is a primary FBI agent that... Carl Hanratty was sort of based on mm-hmm. and his name's Joe Shea and he's the one who actually arrested Frank he didn't he hadn't really had a ton to do with the case prior to arresting Frank but he is the one that they worked with that he worked with a lot once he got out once he was doing his serving out the remainder of his sentence working with the FBI. Wow. It was Joe Shea. That's devastating. Yeah. And they really did have a very close relationship, but there was just a whole bunch of people who worked on this case and it was difficult for them to make all those people have their own characters. It would have been too confusing. My gosh. That's like, I can't, I'm, I'm just, I need a moment. (laughs) That's so sad because I don't like the fact that at the end when they gave us like the the lowdown that they didn't yeah. go ahead and tell you then. And had yeah. they, I think I'd have handled that better. Really? Aww. Yeah, if they had just explained right then and kind of given credit to all the FBI guys like right then, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and then kind of explain that, like that would have made sense. But like now they like lied. <laughs> They're no better than Frank. Oh, <laughs> man. We were lied to. Who is this bastard? Why is he Why lying, is he to, lying me? to me? <laughs> oh. Frank really did invent the check float. Wow. He really did, huh? He really did. He was a master innovator. And he really did learn how to run them all over the country so that he could have free reign for a lot longer in each place that he he sat. And a former police chief of Houston said, Frank Abagnale could write a check on toilet paper drawn on the Confederate States Treasury, sign it, you are hooked, and cash it at any bank in town using a Hong Kong driver's license for identification. He was that, like, charming and good at what he did. Well, that's what it really rested on, right? Right, exactly. He did use model decals for both checks and to make a fake pilot identification I'm so glad that's true. Yeah. Because I thought that was so, like... I mean, it's so simple, uh-huh. but it's kind of like, hee, 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 you know? Well, you know? And he did the, he actually did the badge first, but that would have kind of ruined the fun of that whole scene in the movie where he's soaking the yeah. airplane <laughs> models in the bathtub to get the stickers <laughs> off of them. And he bought kits. He bought Pan Am model kits. It, he probably wasn't soaking them off anything. He just bought the kit, pulled the stickers out, put and them on. Them. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, we know Barry Allen is actually the alter ego of The Flash. Well documented. I was telling my son, talking to him, and I said, yeah, he used the name Barry Allen. He goes, oh, The Flash. <laughs> like, how do you even know that? He does. He just, he just knows. Does. Brenda? Mm-hmm. Not a nurse. Oh. Not Brenda. Okay. 
They also made a play of Catch Me If You Can that was on Broadway in like 2011. And they interviewed Frank Abagnale about that. And that's where I read that he uh, said the character of Brenda Strong is based on an Easter Airlines flight attendant I dated while living in Louisiana. This fit into the story Spielberg wanted to tell about my life between the ages of 16 and 21. She's based on some uh, flight attendant, not a nurse. <sighs> so, yeah, uh, whatever. Creative liberty. Yeah. That one bothers me less than Carl. Yeah, no, that's that's atro- atrocious. I just I can't even. But but it makes sense. I mean, you gotta you're trying to tell a story. You can't necessarily tell it right sometimes with what really happened because it's too <laughs> difficult to set it up. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it makes right. sense. Well, the airline pilot and the physician are pretty well covered on how he was able to con those particular jobs as he was able to like pose as them. So also he said he was a teaching assistant at Brigham Young University for in a sociology program for uh, an entire semester. <laughs> but uh, Brigham Young University denies this. Of course they, they do. Say, of, of course they do. Just like Frank said, everybody would. Mm-hmm. And I, but I thought it was kind of fun to make him a substitute teacher to kind of, it, it, they kind of touched on it. Right. To kind of just show it a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. And then the attorney has a little bit of, interesting information he didn't actually pass the bar after studying for two weeks but he did take the bar exam three times Mm -hmm. and spent eight weeks studying for the third exam and did legitimately pass it wow yeah i'm I'm glad he actually legitimately passed it and that uh, you know i can understand why they gave creative liberty to Mm-hmm. To the two weeks thing, but right. Okay, so he did work for the Louisiana State Attorney General office, but he said he was a graduate from Harvard, and there happened to be another attorney who was also a Harvard graduate, who is a legitimate Harvard graduate, oh. not also a Harvard graduate, a legitimate Harvard graduate. <laughs> And uh, he would pepper him with questions because he didn't seem to understand quite what it would have been like to be at Harvard University Law School. And he had convinced his boss to check on Frank and check his background. And Frank quit before he could be exposed. And he spent about eight months total being a fake attorney in Louisiana. (laughs) (laughs) and that's all i have for that wow you're gonna uh take the lead on our psychology break section i am i am because you know there's a lot to talk about but i'm gonna dive into something that's a little bit more sociology than psychology oh okay good okay because it is psychology but it's group psychology in a way and yet not and the reason is because it's individualism and the American dream. Ah. That is a big portion of this whole movie. And, and they don't talk about it a whole lot, but they, at least not directly, but they mm-hmm. show it. And so the American dream, the impact of the American dream, you know, and we we're talking about his mom. Well, this is like, look at how she responded to having to lose that house in the suburbs and move into the city and it's a small apartment. And, you know, she got her life back and she was willing to get rid of her entire family to make sure she had that comfortable life, you know? And, um, and what did he say throughout the whole movie was this idea of, I'm going to get it all back. I'm going to get it all back. And this idea that he had to, he had to turn, he had to get there. He had to get the American dream and that he couldn't though, cause he was a kid. So he had no right. choice but to turn to something, you know, nefarious. Otherwise, mm-hmm. he, he wouldn't have had an ability to do the American dream because he was poor at that time. Right. So it was, it was really hard. But the point was that because of the individualism of the American society, there was nowhere for him to turn either. Hmm. 
Because American society ha is high on individualism. So the world is kind of on this continuum. Um, societies are, are measured by multiple different dimensions, but, but uh, individualism and, and community oriented, communal. Um, these, this is one major dimension. And, you know, some societies are more uh, collectivist and some are individualist. Okay, so like um, Italy might be more collectivist. Like I know that's why it was so hard hit by COVID nineteen because they had multi generational households. Right. Well, so. and even more, uh, I would say like Japan, China. Oh, these okay. are societies that are actually extremely collectivist. In that, it is the what's best for the group. It is you're you're not taught that you need to grow up and have goals and dreams and things that you need to do. You're taught mm -hmm. that that the society should thrive, that you mm -hmm. go out and you you contribute because that's how you contribute to society. And so there's a lot more of a of a communal ideal even among strangers that that oh. they would be. And what's funny is you might not think that if you travel there, if you were to go there, you might see that people don't necessarily have that, quote, Southern hospitality. They're not chit-chatting on the street kind of thing. And yet, actually, their entire lives is wrapped up in the collective good, right? Okay. Um, Sweden is another example um, of, of a collectivist society, and, and Italy as well, um, mm -hmm. but... In the United States, particularly, we are the highest individualistic society in there. And that's because we all have this idea of we deserve the American dream. And the American huh. dream involves each one of us having a bunch of stuff individually. Huh. And yet, because we're individual, we, we actually compete against each other to get there. And so huh. that's where that one mouse drowns and one doesn't come from. Because, right. you know... When we're seeking the American dream, you feel like you're in a competition, you're in a race, you have to win. Then you have winners and losers. Well, if you're losing at that time, who's going to help you? Right. Yeah. The winners don't want to associate themselves. No. Which is why we love these movies. Because, because what happens inevitably is somebody makes a connection with somebody. Mm -hmm. We want that. We need that because we're built for that. We need a connection. And so what happens is when these two individuals end up bonding together and helping, we're like, oh, yay, look at that. Look at that. Look at them flouting the American dream. But actually, they've actually set it aside for the benefit yeah, of it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They're like, we don't need that American dream. We thought we wanted that. But what we really need is connection with each other. Right. And this is why Isn't everyone is so confused. <laughs> because we don't know what to do with our dreams and aspirations that are so culturally ingrained in us. Like our, our children in schools get asked, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily normal everywhere else. It's not. Mm -mm. Not necessarily. Because we instill this idea of you have to have a goal. You have to have a dream. You have to go for it. Right? We are really heavy on that. What do they ask kids in other countries? Uh, what do you like? What do you oh. enjoy? You know, how would you want to help things? You know, it's just not as ingrained in the way that they talk as the way we talk to our kids. Huh. And so the, we bring them up with these ideals. So when you're, when, you, when you're brought up with the idea of I want to have like a goal and I'm going to get here and I'm going to do that, there's a very individualistic idea of I got to watch out for me, myself, and I first because these things are so, so important. But we also know that that's not we have to connect with other people, right? We, but when we do that, then we put our own success at risk. Huh. So our security is always being threatened. Wow. That's fascinating. It's fascinating. And it's, it's hard. I think I, I've dealt with that for sure. This fear of my, my security being threatened about something, you know? And um, it's, it's, I think it's very confusing to know where do I... Where do I self-care versus where do I give? And our society just makes that a whole blasted mess for us. So, um, you know, and I'm, all, I'm talking about all the bad things right now because, well, obviously <laughs> yeah, we're talking things about... things are bad right now. But things but, are bad right now. Um, uh -huh. And there are some good things to individualism. Because our self-care, we are less likely to put ourselves in precarious situations that are unnecessary and to look for ways to, you know, be able to help without you know, driving ourselves into the ground. So, and amazing success and amazing 
persistence and perseverance and tenacity comes out of that of the individualistic society where that innovation can be you know, an underdog and then they go for it. Whereas if you were in a collective society, you wouldn't necessarily have to get more people on board. So you're maybe less likely to have those really weird, unique ideas come out. Um, Mm. But all of that is so kind of small. Okay. uh, Compared to some of the, uh, the downsides. Mm. And so a lot of generations now, like from millennials and below are, are starting to think about, individualism versus collectivism and what does that look like Mm -hmm. how to balance that maybe Mm -hmm. Mm. how to bring more of that into even our government interesting yeah it's a it's a I'll, I'll have to send some papers over and, and we'll link to some things so that you can go. Oh, if you yeah. want to dive down the rabbit hole of this discussion, I warn you, sociological papers and like humanities papers can be uber difficult to get through. Okay. Um, but if if you will endeavor with it, it, it's kind of amazing how much you can kind of glean, you know. Yeah, really uh, kind of understand about... Oh, so this is why that weird thing is happening in my life, or this is why I feel this way about this situation. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So you're going to send me some links to yes. studies that people can read. Mm-hmm. They uh, let me tell people where they can find those. You can find us on Facebook, Killer Fun Podcast, exploring the intersection of crime and entertainment. You can find us on Twitter at Killer Fun Pod. Or you can send us an email, killerfunpodcast at gmail.com. Any of those ways, you can find the links that we'll post to. If you send me an email, I'll shoot you a link back. It'd be great. So do connect with us. There's lots of great stuff. There's some stuff that we don't talk about in the episode that I found while I was doing my research. I post all that stuff. So it's an interesting follow. All right. So real life. Real life. (laughs) Real life. Deadhead is indeed real airline slang. So it basically refers to either crew members, pilots or flight attendants, or a plane itself that's getting moved for the purpose of a different flight. So a pilot needs to get to a different area in order to be able to take the flight that he need, he's being assigned to, or you need to move an empty plane from one place to another to get it to where it needs to be to pick up cargo or people. I guess people could be cargo, but the, I don't like to think of them as cargo. I mean, they're passengers. <laughs> passengers, that's a good word. <laughs> um, they aren't sure exactly where that term originated, but it could, there was an earlier meaning of the word deadhead that meant a person who uses a free ticket for admittance, accommodation, or entertainment. So hmm. it could be like, so, you know, they were the person that, oh, they're a deadhead. They didn't pay to get in. So yeah, you that makes sense. Yeah. So it could, it could have been that. What's it like being a deadhead pilot? Dustin Long shared an experience as a pilot on Plane and Pilot magazine just last November of 2019, where he was talking about what it's like. Because they don't typically ride in the jump seat. They typically ride in like a regular seat. Right. They just, they're just a passenger. <laughs> right. They're yeah. just a passenger. But they usually wear their uniform. Mm-hmm. So they're pretty recognizable. You know, he says he's like a minor celebrity <laughs> when he's on a plane. Everybody wants to talk to him. So he's in his uniform. He's representing his airline, even if it's not the airline that he works for, that he's mm-hmm. flying on. He can't complain about the lack of food or the lack of leg room or the narrow seats. He said, all those things bother me too. But... He can't complain about any of them. He said it used to be not something that people wanted to do because they'd get paid at 50% of their rate to get moved. So it wasn't their fault that they were supposed to fly from San Francisco to Miami, but their last flight that they took dropped them off in Colorado. That wasn't their fault. They would pay them only 50% to get from Colorado to San Francisco. Now they've got labor agreements that say they have to be paid 
at their full rate for that leg of the flight because it's not their fault. That makes sense. Yeah. He said, actually, meeting strangers on airplanes can sometimes be a very pleasant experience. And that he met a historian who'd written a book on the Peloponnesian War. He says, a subject I never knew I was interested in. (laughs) So he's like, as annoying as it can be to have people complain to him about the flight that he was not piloting. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He can also meet very interesting people. The idea of hotels cashing checks was like super foreign. So I did a little looking and I guess, you know, it used to be way more common because you used to need cash more. Yeah, you did. Now we all have credit cards. Uh, You can still cash checks at some hotels depending on uh, if you're a rewards member or not. And depending on if that particular hotel within the chain is participating in that service. So you might be a rewards member for Hilton and they offer that service, but only at Hilton's that are participating in that particular service. They might not. But uh, casinos will cash your checks. Yes, they will. (laughs) They'll cash your personal check and your traveler's check, but they don't typically cash payroll checks. Well, that would get them in a lot of hot water, I would assume. Well, so, you would th- yeah, you've got somebody with a gambling problem yeah. who brings their payroll check right in and they just cash it so that they can lose it. Yeah. No, that that's a bad deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those uh, women's college students were super, super excited about the possibility of becoming flight attendants because it really was... Super exciting to be a flight attendant in the 60s. Oh, yeah. It was the thing. Because your jobs could be secretarial pool, teacher, or nurse until you got married. Yep. All those jobs are kind of, not that they're not boring. They're just, they were limiting. There wasn't a lot of travel involved in a school teacher's curriculum, Mm -hmm. usually. So if you had a desire for adventure and wanted to travel... Being a flight attendant, good deal. Yes. One flight attendant from the 60s was interviewed by Vanity Fair, and she said, we were almost at the same level as a movie star. People admired us when we walked through the terminal, and I remember our uniforms, they were all custom fit and sculpted to our bodies, so everybody looked fabulous. (laughs) But they did have some kind of uh, draconian requirements. Yes, they did. Yeah, you had to be a woman. You couldn't be any younger than 20, but not older than 27. You couldn't be shorter than 5'2 or taller than 5'9. You could not weigh any more than 140 pounds. And you had to agree to retire at the age of 32, no matter how old you were when you started. Yeah. Can you imagine that now? No. No, me either. No. I mean, they were forced to wear corsets, fancy shoes. For the longest time, they actually tried to get away with explaining some of those away with practical reasons. And then finally, that, those got overturned a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it's... Yeah, well, well, you can't have too much weight. Yeah. Or, you know, the size-wise, oh, but, you know, you can't be so too, too short, so you can't reach the... Uh, overhead bins Mm -hmm. and things like that. And sure. Okay. A little bit. uh, Not really. A little bit. A little bit back when planes maybe not had this much going on for it either. It might've been a little harder for short people. I could could see that for a little bit. For a little bit. But I tell you, that job is so different now than then. Because then you were a waitress in the sky. That's what you were. Now you are a first responder. You are in charge. Like, by law, federal law, you have to follow flight attendants' orders. I mean, they are in charge of that airplane. Yes, as they should be now that they're trained for it. Yep. I mean, they're the ones who are going to help you get that door Mm -hmm. open and make sure the... uh, slide goes Mm -hmm. out so that you can get out of the plane if something happens. But the whole article is fascinating (laughs) with all the different stuff that they, 
that they did and how, how different it was and people dressed. I mean, they'd get all fancy dressed and 80% of the people flying were businessmen. Mm-hmm. Frank did found his own company, Abagnale and Associates, um, but he still works with the FBI and still lectures extensively at the FBI Academy. Uh, most of his work now is for the federal government, but he can he does speaking gigs all the time. I want to go hear him speak. I bet it's fascinating. I bet it is too. I bet it's really interesting. Interesting to hear him tell the stories, whether they're true or not. <laughs> well, because that's the thing you never quite know, right? Uh, no, you really don't quite know for sure. <laughs> All right. And that's it for today. Amazing. Next time. We've been trying to do this for a year. <laughs> so we're finally going to do it. Yes. The book. A Serial Killer's Daughter Cannot wait. by Carrie Rawson. Yeah. She is the daughter of Dennis Rader, who's also known as BTK. And the the book's just fascinating. I cannot wait. I, so haven't, interesting I haven't to started it yet. And so I am I am just I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting for the right <laughs> moment. You know what I mean? I can't wait. Mm-hmm. She did a really good job. It's a it's well written. It's not a super difficult read. It goes really fast. Mm-hmm. But I mean, what's difficult about it is how challenging uh, situation she was in, both bef- when she was a child, and how different he was at times with her and with their family, um, and how after. The aftermath after he was finally arrested. Man, it's fascinating. I cannot wait to get your perspective on it. Oh, I'm so glad that, like, she wrote it. That's what I'm glad. I'm glad that she did it, that she wrote it. Because I could imagine with all that trauma, it would just be much easier to sock it away. But instead, she, like, shared it with the world. And, you know, we can learn stuff from it. We can, you know, she's, I know she's got Mm -hmm. a lot of insight. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yay! Yeah, super, super brave. Yeah, me too. Thank you for listening. We know you make a choice when you listen to us that we don't just come on the radio. We thank you for that. Listen with a friend because it's way more fun when you listen with a friend. Rate and review because it really does help us get found and we'd love to be found. And if you can't give us five stars wherever you're rating, please let us know why. Do send us an email to killerfunpodcast at gmail.com and let us give us some feedback. We'd love to hear it. Mm So until next time, until next time, wash your hands, be safe. (laughs) Yes, be safe. And we will see you next time.